You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Manners maketh man. Do you know what that means? Then let me teach you a lesson. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole where the hosts from the network and of course we've got friends who just drop by. We talk all things geeky. I hope that you have ordered something special from Ruby tonight. Grab a chair. I am your host Matthew Rushing and with me this week I'm so excited to have him. It's Norm. Hey everyone out there in Trek FM listening land. It's is Norm sitting at the 602. Hold on a second. There are a couple guys that are harassing okay. Ruby. A couple of hooligans. So I'm going to deal with them. I'm going to lock these doors and I'm going to pull out my umbrella cane and I'm going to teach these guys a couple of manners. Okay. Give me one second. Actually, no, there are four of them and I'm not nearly as skilled as a Kingsman guard. So forget that. I'm just going to sit down. Oh, and be well, uh, hey, you guys cut it out there. Yeah. Leave her alone. No, go. OK, I got it. You got it. Uh, well, <laughs> tonight it's going to be fun. It, and In fact, Norm and I were talking before the show, and uh, really I think it's just going to extend our Facebook conversation we were having earlier today about Kingsman, which is the new film by Matthew Vaughn, who as many people know directed X-Men First Class, did a fantastic job with that. From the mind of Mark Miller, who gave us the comics such as Kick-Ass, came The Secret Service, which Kingsman is loosely based off of. And, of course, Matthew Vaughn had a decision. Do I direct Days of Future Past, or do I direct Kingsman The Secret Service? For you, what do you think, Norm, just before we get into anything else? Kind of good call for him, bad call? What do you think? Well, I think it's always a good call for a director to kind of branch out and just get into some new material because... It makes them grow as a director. It also gives them, you know, better insight and a little bit more of a, just a, a larger palette to work with when it comes to, you know, his own skill. But I loved him. I mean, I loved what he did with X-Men First Class. I mean, it, he obviously knows how to tailor his storytelling to the genre and to the, and to the era because, you know, we're dealing with, obviously, in X-Men First Class, we're dealing with the 1960s X-Men and in this particular film, even though it's not set in those times, it does have to pull off that kind of flair because we are dealing with the nostalgic tropes and trimmings of the traditional spy genre. So I think he did a really good job with it. It was a smart move. And he crafted his movie in a way where it was modern but retained that that era, that mod era flair of the, of the British Secret Service movies or the, uh, the spy movies. Yeah, I think, you know, on a whole, I feel like this was a good move for him. He got to make the movie that he really wanted to make. Um, you know, you're not really constrained by the fact that, you know, this is only loosely based off of Mark Miller's comic book. And therefore, he can take the ideas that he likes. He's He doesn't have to be a slave to anything or really anyone, I don't feel like. He just kind of gets to do what he wants to do as the filmmaker. And, you know, like you said, this is really kind of 
a fun homage to all of those old spy movies with a twist, basically. And, um, you know, I, I think you can really tell that he, as the director, is having a lot of fun in this film and and just enjoying what he's doing. So I think it's a great call. And, and specifically, if you read online, you can go search out there uh, some of the things that Matthew Vaughn said he might have done with uh, X-Men Days of Future Past as opposed to what Brian Singer ended up doing. You know, some of the ideas I think he had are pretty interesting and some of them aren't. In fact, he didn't even have a Quicksilver scene. Um, he was going to have Juggernaut be in a plane and they would, you know, fly up, 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 up as far as they could until the plane, you know, was about to stall. And then they had Juggernaut um, jump out and slam through the earth to rescue Magneto. So, you know, I just, it's... um. In the end, he, he said, I think that uh, the scene with Quicksilver is way better, and the movie was, was better for, for me not being involved. So, And it was like the most memorable scene, I oh, think, yeah, of the movie. Exactly. You know, because of, it, just because of the, the, the storytelling, the, the way that they slowed down time in a way you didn't really see before. It, yeah. And his choice of uh, time in a bottle. Oh, fantastic. Um, d- yeah, he does a really good job at, being able to attach certain classic musical numbers to his storytelling very much in the same way that Scorsese does it. You know, he allows the music to help tell the story and he did it a couple times in this movie. Um, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. You know, so I, am glad that Brian Singer is actually back at X-Men, you know, on a whole, it was his X-Men movies that really brought me in and got me excited about X-Men. And then of course he left and, Dismal X-Men 3, maybe we'll just talk about it one, one uh, you know, 602 so we can have a, a fun uh, gripe fest. And you know, there's a couple of things in there that are interesting. But um, yeah, I'm glad that uh, Matthew Vaughn did this, mainly because the spy game. I mean, we are back with over-the-top spy movie. Um, you know, it is definitely left... The, the cinemas, you know, we don't see a lot of this. Everything is, is much more serious and, and things like that. You know, even Bond, Bourne, all these things. So, you know, having this kind of uh, ridiculous, over-the-top spy movie, being back, what did you think? Especially, I know you're a huge fan uh, of Bond mm-hmm. uh, and, and the old Bonds with the crazy stuff. I mean, we're talking like, you know, the ridiculous Moonrakers and all that kind of stuff. Um, what right, were your right. first impressions after kind of walking out of the theater, having seen, you know, Kingsman and, and what Matthew Vaughn's basically take on all that crazy spy stuff is? Well, I think he actually has a really good understanding of the older, you know, more classic spy genre where you're dealing with these huge gadgets and these huge villains and these huge bases and these over the top stunts and all these greats and completely impossible scenarios you know, it's, it's, it's almost as if they took Austin Powers, stripped the humor out of it and made it more of a dramatic film, because that's kind of like what Austin Powers was. It was that was the same kind of homage to the 1960s spy genre of the original Connery Bond and our man Flint and man from uncle. You know, there are just certain telltale signs that that those movies and TV shows and all the different series and even the books the comics of the time and kind of like the novels, they all have these, these almost unbeatable, indestructible heroes. And, and they throw them into these situations where, yeah, the consequences are dire. The villains are, you know, beyond expectation, but at the same time they can 
achieve their mission and kind of straighten up their tie and brush off the dust and look like a million bucks at the end of it. So as much as I love kind of like the serious tone that the Daniel Craig movies have taken with with, you know, Bond from Casino Royale to Skyfall and coming up with Spectre, I do still miss a little bit of the tongue in cheek um just completely exaggerated spy genre where a watch can do a billion different things or you have, you know, poison at, you know, the, at your fingertips, literally, um, you know, the, the suit that can stop bullets, you know, it's, they even made mentions of the shoes used to have the, uh, the, the miniature phones in them. And that was kind of like a nod to get smart. So I, I loved it. I, I walked out and I'm like, you know what? Yes. That's not the way spy movies are done anymore, especially with the seriousnesses of the James Bourne movie, uh, the, sorry, the uh, Jason Bourne movies. But there is that kind of pull that those older spy movies still have over me. And I think they still do over a lot of people that grew up with them like I did. You did. Yeah. Did you notice that um, the, the exact plot of this is is basically Moonraker as well as that great Deep Space Nine episode where... Bashir is in the holodeck and he is playing the spy and Dr. Noah, who is who is actually played by Avery Brooks at that point, our, our Captain Sisko, because, uh, well, it, it's a big, long Star Trek episode. And Would that be our man Bashir? Yeah, our man Bashir. That's right. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is literally the same plot, though, is that he is going to gather the uh, people who deserve to live and start a new humanity. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's going to create uh, volcanoes that will uh, basically annihilate the Earth and he on Everest and his people will survive. Right. Pretty much the same thing that uh, Valentine's doing in this movie. So it was very funny watching Kingsman. I was thinking, they really just rip off Iron Man Bashir and Moonraker all at the same time? <laughs> Well, I mean, those are they're, they're, those are like kind of fun, kind of classic, exactly, very yeah. identifiable stories, and then they just kind of repackaged it and made it a little bit more mainstream and retro yeah. at the same time. But yeah, it was very much like Valentine was the Hugo Drax of this movie, and he had the arcs, which was his basically his his kick and bar at the end, mm-hmm. the, the yep. underground base. I mean, it's it has all the over the top trimmings, right? I mean, you even had a base in the mountains, right, just right. like Doctor Noah does in. Our man Bashir. So it was it was very funny. The other thing that I really thought my first impression was I was like, this is kind of like Spy Hogwarts. Our our main character Xe he you know goes to Spy Hogwarts and uh, learns how to be a spy and um, learns how to be the best spy who's going to end up saving the world just like Harry Potter, uh, or James so, Bond Junior. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's very much the same thing. So it was you know on a whole there was so much I felt like to really like about kind of bringing this back and and pay homage to a lot of what we haven't done in a while. And I don't know about you, but I don't feel like this is something where I really want a sequel to it because I feel like you'd start to kind of dilute that specialness because you'd try to keep like, um, I don't know, recapturing the magic. But then you're just really reinventing, I feel like, a worn out trope. That's why James Bond movies moved away from some of those tropes because they were just worn out and they'd been done before. This is special at the moment because it has been done in a while and it's a fun take on all that we've seen before. And you can basically do what Pirates of the Caribbean, the original did. You Mm -hmm. can be 
a conglomeration of all the greatest pirate movies put into one thing. But when you try to make sequels to that, you start scratching your beard like, uh, that's, it's not really working for me. Well, I mean, you're right. You're taking all of the traditional and most iconic moments of these types of series and movies, and you're putting them all in, in one film and you're, you're, you know, you're cherry picking the best parts. And when you do all that, you're literally kind of Frankensteining the movie with all of the best elements of everything that you love. So yeah, when you sequelize it, you get Bride of Frankenstein. Really? You know, it's, it's, there's, there's still a little bit that you can milk out of it, but not enough to really be a true sequel or to you know, deliver anything new. So, right. Yeah. This is a really nice kind of like a, a bottled type of movie where sure you can kind of like, you know, follow the adventures of Eggsy, you know, as he gets groomed into a gentleman's spy, but is that really what you want out of him? You kind of like him being cheeky and being unrefined because that's kind of like the secret. He's this, you know, the, the street urchin turned, you know, gentleman spy, but not really. Yeah, exactly. Well, and you kind of lose the freshness, I think, you know, when you start to try and find a way to, you know, sequelize something and you, you, your main goal usually is to make it bigger and better. And that's not always, you know, the way to go, but that's the kind of the, the area you go into with a lot of these types of films. And yeah, I mean, because you've really just taken the best of, of every kind of spy movie and put it into one thing, uh, you're, you're kind of written yourself into a corner. I don't really know how to make this bigger and better because we already did. We made it the biggest and the best we could uh, because we just took all the best and put it into one blender. <laughs> Came out with a basomatic. Uh, nice. so <laughs> now, um, I, I have to admit, though, I haven't read this book, The Secret Service. So I went into this movie pretty much trusting the fact that what I saw is not... It wasn't too diluted. I knew it would be a derivative of the work, but much of it I hoped remained intact. So what I was seeing was, yes, it was an homage piece, but I'm sure that if they want to continue the comic line, they have to be able to hopefully be original in some respect. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the interesting thing is that, you know, this does come from a comic series and like you have not read the comic series by Mark Miller and um, there are just kind of perusing the uh, interwebs on, on some of the backgrounds for this, kind of seeing the similarities and, and just basically where they they lifted parts of the plot from the comic book and, and put it into the movie and then made the rest their own. So I think it could be done. Uh, whether or not necessarily uh, they'll they'll go ahead and do it, I don't know. You know, it's Hollywood, and right now anything that they can make a franchise out of, I feel like they want to. Uh, and there's even talk already that uh, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, everybody, I'm going to spoil something right now. So if you haven't seen the movie, don't listen any further right now. Ruby, shut your ears. Yeah. Um, there's talk for the second movie, if they do a second one, of trying to find a way to bring Colin Firth back. That and is impossible. Yeah. That's impossible. That's impossible. Exactly. So I, it, they're already in, in the works. That I just kind of want to go on record and be like, I, Hollywood, just make one and be done and feel happy that you made a you know good movie. But uh, they can't really do that. Um, 
But I would love to see him again, you know, in some respect. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things, and, and I'd, I'd love to continue to talk, talk about some of the things I really loved. Uh, you know, I really enjoyed this whole idea of, you know, the manners maketh man. And if you've seen the previews, you've kind of seen uh, Colin Firth give that phrase and really ask what that means. And the people are kind of like looking at him. I don't get it. But I just really love that this movie is ridiculous and outlandish and bombastic. And yet, all at the same time, it's a very intimate movie about the ideas of, especially in England, still, you know, class and making something of oneself. And, and just because you're of a certain class doesn't mean you can't be that have that happen. Um, but really, the idea that, you know... To be a man who has manners, it's something that has to be passed on, you know, from man to man. You know, one man teaching another young man how how this happens. And I really thought that that was a great message because, you know, it is something that doesn't happen a lot. We, you know, we, we have a lot of kids growing up without great male role models in their lives. And so men that are growing up they don't really understand how to be a good man because they don't have anybody modeling it for them and really liked that because it was completely on show here in the film and that um you know Eggsy really needed that and you know Colin Firth comes along and kind of gives him that role model um and even gives him a great lesson about what it means to have manners it's not about how you talk you know it's about how you treat others and yourself um so I just really loved that in this ridiculously crazy movie we're actually talking about something that's actually pretty important especially in today's world oh yeah and that's the one thing that i really focused in on when i was watching the movie was this relationship between a mentor and his ward and how he was trying to he wasn't forcing anything on xc he was leading by example and his example was even when i'm not doing the spy thing I'm walking tall, I'm treating people with respect as I would like to be treated or else I will tase them or tranquilize them with my watch, you know, or use one of my other spy gadgets on them, but only if they're really behaving badly or if they needed to be taught a lesson. So there was this really neat Batman-Robin kind of relationship that these two were forging where um, the, the, the code name was Galahad and it was neat for him to take on the mantle of how we never saw how James Bond was trained. So who would have been James Bond's mentor? That's the way I saw this. As if I could put Exy in the role of like a young James Bond, who trained him up to this point? Aside from what we already know of, of, the, of the retcon of James Bond's story in Casino Royale, if we were talking about the Sean Connery James Bond, the gentleman spy, the spy who can sniff um, a glass of brandy and tell you exactly what age and what vintage and all of the accoutrement that goes with it. Who was the guy that trained him? And this is what we see in this movie. And that's what I loved about it. I loved that Colin Firth was so unbelievably, impeccably British. He was British properness and perfection, pressed and polished in the most gorgeous suit Gorgeous shoes, and this is his understudy who has to learn everything that it is to become this particular gentleman. And I thought that was really neat to see. Well, and he even says, you know, the Kingsmen are the new knights. 
And, you know, a knight didn't learn how to be a knight from watching a bad example. You know, you, you just became a bad knight at that point. You're a bad man, really. Um, and, you know, watching, you know, Galahad, Exy has a, a great role model for what it means to be, you know, a man uh, that has chivalry, uh, a man that uh, has good moral character, you know, and he's he's shown people that, you know, throughout the film too, that he thinks are on the right side and then he finds out later aren't, you know, and it's really their actions in the end that really play that out. And I think, again, you just, it, it's a really great movie in, in a world where a, a lot of times boys grow up without a great male role model. And we kind of see that obviously in this film with Eggsy, who, who doesn't have any great role mo- male role models whatsoever. Right. Until Colin Firth comes along and his his character of Galahad really gives him somebody to look up to and to treat Eggsy with the respect that he doesn't even give himself. Uh, and I think it's it's just it really is the again, the fact that we're having this conversation about such a ridiculously goofy movie, I think uh, underscores what I say all the time and why it really bothers me when people are like, oh, it's just a comic book movie. It doesn't need to make you think. But I, th- this movie is utterly ridiculous, and yet it has one a, a really important issue in it that you come out thinking about, at least I did. And that's what I really appreciated about, say, this film over, uh, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy, where if any of the message is there, I just felt like so tropey and just so overdone and, and, and done better in other places. This movie had a great message uh, in that and it was something that I think I've seen as being really important about what it means to be a real man and how that needs to be passed on. And we're not doing a great job of that as a society with so many young boys who, who grow up without great male role models. And I'm not even saying fathers here. I'm just great male role models for them to look up to. And then the ones that they do have, you know, it's, whether it's in Hollywood or otherwise, it's 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 kind of sad. So think that's really cool for this film to be doing you know you just reminded me of something and i'm glad i remembered this but a lot of the time when i was watching the the scenes the intimate scenes and the quiet scenes between galahad and Exy, it reminded me a lot of star trek 2009 between pike and kirk yeah yeah definitely did you feel that because i yeah I, I was like yeah this is this is that same kind of really cool dynamic where pike knows that that Kirk has so much more potential than that he's uh, not applying himself, that he has all of this in him and he just needs to find the catalyst to be able to shape this incredibly, you know, strong and able and talented future leader. And I think that's, I mean, it was really well paralleled for me in my mind in, in Kingsman when I saw how, especially when, um, when Galahad kept going down all of the different, background pieces of information like you did this but you quit you did this but you quit you did this but you quit why didn't you follow anything through and Exy had excuse after excuse after excuse and it was another one of those moments where it's like you know a gentleman doesn't make excuses for himself a gentleman sees things through and I just thought that was a really nice way of again seeing this and fostering this mentor ward relationship where that comes home you know, at the right point in, in, in the raison d'etre of the movie. Yeah, I can't agree more. I mean, that whole thing of, of us just making excuses. I mean, I, I do it too 
for certain things in my life. And it's just not appropriate to blame others for my own mistakes uh, and to not take responsibility. And that's one of the things that I think is so key in this film as well is just taking full-on responsibility. And that's what I loved about Galahad's character, Colin Firth's character, is that he is taking responsibility for the actions that the Kingsmen have taken. And and Eggsy's father uh, was lost. He was a Kingsman. And throughout this film, he's trying to take responsibility, which he feels is his responsibility because, you know, uh, Eggsy's father died, he felt like, because of him, because of a mistake he made. Therefore, he is taking responsibility for his actions and how important that really is, again, in a world where we just would rather blame anyone and everyone for what's happened to us other than our own self. And... Yeah, I mean, it's just really nicely done in this film. And it's not hitting you over the head with it. That's the great thing. It, this is not beaning you over the head with a message. It's just, I think, well-laced into the rest of the film. So that, you know, if you really weren't paying attention, you, you probably wouldn't get much of what we're talking about. But I think if you are, that's the great thing. A movie as utterly ridiculous as Kingsman is when you come down to the plot and all that kind of stuff actually has something interesting to say and and i really really liked that um because there's a lot of other things that it does as well like um the fact that apparently anybody can be bought uh, <laughs> in, in this movie and uh even the the person that we think the the most of could be corruptible um which happens in the film as well um through other characters so uh, really, really, really well done in the sense that they are giving us a lot to think about in a, in a movie that you wouldn't go in expecting, yeah, I'm probably going to come out and think about this for a while, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, ex- you, no, you're not going to be thinking about the explosions if you're really paying attention. You're going to be paying attention to some great uh, themes and, and uh, messages in this movie that I think, um, for me, made that's what made this film the most enjoyable. It wasn't, you know, the ridiculous outlandish things. It was really these small bits that they were putting in there that were really driving home um, some things that, you know, I've been thinking about for a long time and I think are actually really important, like, you know, good male role models and taking responsibility and all that kind of stuff. So great stuff for that here. Oh, agreed. And also the loyalty tests, because Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there are many, many times where, your convictions are put to the test and they do it literally in this movie. But for, for forging a young man and the quality that they want to put into XE, the tests that he, he has put through the tests that the rest of the Kingsman candidates are put through are literally making you face your own resolve and test your faith in your own abilities, but the ability of the people that surround you. So I thought that was really interesting that they did it obviously in, in, in more of a, dramatic literate, uh, literate fashion, you know, with a literally with a gun pointed to your head at times, but to put these young people like they're what, in their early twenties to yeah. put their, yeah, to put their loyalty to the test like that and to see what they're made out of, what kind of stuff they're made out of the stuff that, that, that King and country or queen and country need. that was a pretty neat theme. They also put in the movie that layered into the characters. Well, that is a change from the comic as I was reading up on it a little bit is that uh, in the comic, it is just MI6 that we're dealing with. Uh, It's not called the Kingsman. It's just called the Secret Service. Uh, And so they actually created that, I believe, for the film, it looks like, 
that the, you know the Kingsman is that um, secret service that doesn't have any allegiance to a certain government. You know they they are you know self funded and um, so not self serving, but um, they're definitely not working for any specific government. Uh, but uh, you know these people are are working for uh, the the betterment of the of the world. And so, yeah, I think it's it's really interesting to see that the fact that people like this, and when he kind of explains the Kingsmen to Exby for the first time, and talking about you know these these really rich men wanting to do something with their money that would have a lasting effect on the world for good, um, yeah, I thought it was really interesting, especially since uh, you have a movie talking about you know um, spy intelligence and preemptive action and all of this kind of stuff the stuff that we've talked about um you know in our world for a very long time now and yeah it's a it's a it's a really again just another issue that this movie kind of touches on and uh if you're thinking you're going to come out thinking a little bit harder than you you might have thought when you went in when you just thought you were probably getting explosions you know there's a couple ways that you could do a viable and successful sequel if you really thought about it. And I was just, there were a couple things that we talked about that just kind of bought the, you know, brought this to my attention. Now, this is an organization that doesn't, it's not beholding to any government. They, they admitted that. So what if there were other international counterparts to the Kingsmen and they could always work together to create this, almost like this, uh, this Interpol that doesn't really belong to anybody because they, Again, they they're they're funded by this this giant pool of wealth that they've accumulated over time, but they can't. You know, their this idea might have been spread to a bunch of different countries. You could have a European conglomerate of Kingsmen, an Asian version of the Kingsmen. You know, with samurai that have been trained to be modern day spies, ninjas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That would be cool, and also. One thing that you said was interesting is that what if some of these young men go rogue and they don't really follow the ideals of the Kingsman because one of them didn't in the movie and became almost kind of like a a double agent. And these guys were modern day knights. So what if they became the adversaries of the Kingsman and kind of like Mordred's faction, if you will? That would be kind of cool. You know, now you have Mordred versus Arthur or, you know, these dark knights versus like the Knights of the Round Table. That would be kind of neat. Yeah. I mean, again, there are things that you could do. You could make this your own. And and really, I think what you need to do is if you're going to do a sequel, you really have to kind of create your own mythology at that point and really kind of dive into that and move forward. And, And again, very much the same way they tried to do with the Pirates of the Caribbean films. Um, you know, they did one bombastic movie and then it was so successful they decided to do another one. Maybe, you know, and, and I would think that Matthew Vaughn in some ways had already been thinking, okay, if this is successful, they'll probably ask me to do a sequel. So I better think of some pretty stinking good ideas for a sequel. So yeah, that's it's my guess is they've already been thinking about it. But I, it's just, there's a part of me, a big part of me who would just love Hollywood to be okay with having one great movie and then and, and moving on to something else, you know? Um, so, because I don't, I don't know how well this, this formula, this formula at least works, uh, without just kind of turning it into James Bond two, 
you know, no, like I get it. James Bond's the not James Bond. So, yeah, no, I get it. But when you have to, you know, when you have to propose this to Hollywood now, I think it has to come with some kind of a package deal where, okay, what else do you have behind, you know, door number one? You know, <laughs> yeah. you know it's, uh, we, we dig your idea, but you really got to come at it with a sequel so it can sell like, you know, trilogy DVD sets and Blu-rays and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, that's just kind of like par for the course now, right? Yeah, I I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I, I suspect that that's definitely how this works. Okay, if this does well, how can we squeeze more juice out of it? How can we beat the dead horse? Uh, you know, so on a whole, though, what did you think of just the cast? I mean, you know, Colin Firth, I would not have put him in this role, but I feel like he nails it. I mean, just nails it. I think that's the coolest thing when an actor like this just comes completely out of left field and you're like, wow, I didn't see that coming. But he, you're right. He totally nailed the part of this really polished gentleman, agent, spy person. Because, you know, we all know Colin Firth from his incredible tour de force performance of The King's Speech. It was just, you know, he was brilliant there wasn't in any way an action film at all unless you just take into consideration the the it was during World War II. But, wow, the physicality that he had to bring to this movie, um, just the way that his mannerisms were, the way that he carried himself, the way that he, he emulated about as much James Bond that he could without breaking a trademark here. Because that's who he was, really. I mean, he and Lancelot, basically the entirety of the senior, the senior Kingsman, they were all an amalgamation of James Bond in, in one way or another. But you really saw it with Colin Firth. And you have to be really, really good at your job if you can do close quarter combat without even losing your glasses off your face. That's pretty amazing. And he did that with, I mean, come on. I mean, this is a movie, but you're you're so good that your suit never gets ruffled, except for one scene, and you're fighting with glasses on, which never get knocked off, which is pretty amazing. So, Colin Firth, action hero, I'm all for it. Well, I mean, the whole time, all I'm thinking is, Mr. Darcy kicks ass. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's he's really famous for being Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice, Pride and Prejudice you know, the yeah, BBC yeah. version that's a billion hours long. And uh, yeah, I've seen it. It's it's not my favorite version, but that's a whole other podcast. You know, I just I really I love this. And what I love is that Colin Firth wasn't going to get this job unless he could do the church scene. Um, Matthew Vaughn said, "Look, I've got this scene. I don't know if you're up to it. And um, basically, if you're not, uh, I I can't give you the job." So he gave him time to prepare. And they came back, and he saw that Colin Firth had worked so hard, he, he allowed him to, to have the role. But, I mean, this was something that they were worried about. It Couldn't Colin Firth pull this off? And they weren't necessarily sure that he was going to get the role. I love, I love that he, he did this, though. And, and, you know, like you said, he really just kind of comes out of, of nowhere to do this. And it's not something you've ever seen this man do. But it is done so effortlessly. At least that's what it looks like to us. Um, I'm pretty sure Colin Firth, I mean, he's he's not a young gentleman. He's an older mm. gentleman at this point. Mm-hmm. So that is a lot of work for a man his age to put in and uh, do it with such finesse. 
you know, he probably left shooting days, walked into a hot tub, poured himself a nice brandy and just kind of had to chill out and relax because I'm sure that he was walking away with some bruises. I am pretty sure. Um, you know, the, the scenes that you have with him where he really does have some serious action. Goodness. Um, he has out and out. I mean, would have taken quite a long time to, to film this series. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed with him. And, um, you know, I think anybody who goes to see the film is going to come out very, uh, very impressed and looking very highly on Colin Firth and, and what he did for this for this movie. What did you think of, of having... Because Samuel L. Jackson plays a lot of good guys, you know, and, and a lot of badass good guys. You know, we're kind of used to that. But what did you think of him being, you know, basically the badass villain? I mean, it's... He plays the villain the way... And Mark Miller wrote a villain here that is the true essence of a villain because... When you read the definition of a supervillain, the best ones are played because they don't believe they are the villain. They believe that they're doing something good. They believe that in their purpose and in their goal to create a better world, albeit by obviously culling the population to his needs. But that's what that's what these the supervillains are. They believe they're heroes, and I think that Sam Jackson did a really good job at doing that because he does play a lot of heroic roles. So you make that little bit of a twist in his morality and that defines him as a villain because obviously killing innocent civilians is not a good thing, you know, in terms of villain versus hero. The the only thing about Valentine that I really didn't get, and maybe they explain it more in the book, I don't know, is I didn't really get the lisp factor of this guy's performance because it didn't really bring anything to the character it's not like he was in any way mentally challenged to have a lisp it didn't make him any more or less menacing it's you know sometimes when you have something like that um, one of the henchmen will kind of like laugh or they'll chuckle or they'll you know they'll say something under their breath and then he'll do something completely horrific to that to that character and now you know why you never no one ever makes fun or tries to correct that ailment. But it was just there. And it kind of got in the way for me because it just didn't really serve a purpose because you know it's Sam Jackson and now it's Sam Jackson with a lisp for no reason. You know? Yeah, I totally just saw it as being how do we make him stand out as a as a ridiculous over the top villain, you know, like those James Bond movies do and well uh, we don't want him to have a cat, and they already did that. And when they they made awesome powers and kind of making fun of of Bond movies and everything, um, well, okay, what do we do? Uh, what do we do? So I just gave him a weird lisp, you know. Is that that's completely how I took it. So it doesn't really bother me. I just thought it was funny, kind of hearing Samuel L. Jackson with a lisp. <laughs> oh goodness! But I think you're on the other side. You know, he just made a the the. The insanity of his villain was interesting, you know, just um, that he does believe that he's doing the right thing, but at the same time, the thing he thinks he's doing that's right is just completely insane. Um, You know, the way to go about it is just ridiculous. So um, it was was very, very interesting and and a lot of 
uh, fun because again, it's this is the point of the film where it's just completely over the top and, and outrageous, and in that, I think he does a great job with that. You know, um, I think Samuel L. Jackson is much better at this kind of role than he is the Mace Windu, uh, unfortunately. Uh, a Sith Lord? <laughs> you, you're shocked. Good night, brother. All right, I'm going to have to rein you in there because we can do that as a completely other podcast as well. Yes, yes, we can. (laughs) Um, Okay, so some surprise people. Mark Hamill. Mm. Now, I did not know this coming in. I didn't either. Yeah. It was awesome. And he he did his best British professor impersonation that sounded amazingly like the Joker the entire time, which I loved. I could care less if you couldn't pull off a British accent because you just had Joker here the entire time. And I was like, I just waiting for him to cackle and that the movie would have been a complete win for me. Yeah, it was awesome. The fact that he showed up, I'm just kind of wondering if there's going to be kind of a resurgence for Mark Hamill in his, uh, you know, later years here where he'll just kind of pop up in these kind of roles and, It was just fantastic. You know, what's funny is that in the comic book, and I was reading this today, in the comic book, a group of unknown terrorists do abduct Mark Hamill, who is an environmental scientist, and who is held against his will in the cabin in the mountains in Switzerland, just as the film has. So, uh, Mark Hamill, yes, environmental scientist, just as he is in the film. So, it was great that they had, they got Mark Hamill in this movie, just fantastic. Well, it solved the riddle of what Luke Skywalker has been doing this entire time, you know, where he has just been hanging out with nature, balancing the force. So, and, and yeah, I mean, Luke know. Skywalker solves global warming. Exactly. Right? So it's great. We couldn't do it on Tatooine, so he doesn't. No, exactly. I yeah, yeah. Tatooine is way too far gone. But right. um, no, but it was it was neat seeing him because, I mean, for us, for for fans of Mark Hamill and fans of Star Wars and Luke Skywalker. It's always a treat to see one of your childhood heroes hit the screen, even in in the smallest measure. And just to see him again, you know, just to see him working, just to be able to anchor kind of like your fandom back onto the big screen with this person that you've cared about, still care about all this time. And it was neat because again, it was Mark Hamill, but his Joker voice was just, just seeping out. So, intensely because it, it's just I don't know maybe you can't do a British accent and it just turned into the Joker I don't who cares <laughs> you know it, it was just awesome seeing him I loved it what did you think of, of Mark Strong as a good guy playing Merlin loved it absolutely loved it I, I, I love watching Mark Strong because he has this great quiet intensity about him and it's neat though even though that um that Matthew Vaughn directed this because there is that kind of Mark Miller kick-ass connection because Mark Strong was in the first movie, the first kick-ass movie. And I don't know. I just, I, I love seeing Mark Strong on, on camera. I think he's a great character actor. It was neat to see him play. He is like the this. director of kick-ass. Okay, so there we go. We have a good relationship there. And he was Q for all intents and purposes. Yeah, definitely. You know, he was their, um, he was their quartermaster he was able to outfit all of the knights with all of their gear. He was obviously a master of computer hacking and, you know, he was on point with all the technology. He knew how to fly a plane. He knew how to, he, he was, he was the guy. He was, he was the behind the scenes guy very much like he was. And he kept, he kept a uh, close tabs on his agents and he was just great because he can do 
all the different facets of acting. He can do good comedy. You know, he can obviously turn, you know, the dramatic note. Uh, his intensity is pretty much beyond compare. He can stare you down. Uh, I think he would have made a terrific Lex Luthor in some incarnation of Superman, but that's a completely other different podcast. Matthew, I think we just wrote like three different podcasts during this. That show, is true. So, we really did. You know, we got to pencil those ones in. Now, I, I love Mark Strong. I can't say enough about him. I love watching him act, and I think he was great in this role. Well, I just love that this guy is getting the opportunity to play a good guy. You know, he, so many movies he kind of plays a bad guy. I'm really thinking of, you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes where he's the bad guy and, and things like that. Uh, but what I loved is that you said Lex Luthor Superman. I was thinking, wouldn't he make an amazing Alfred the Butler? He could. I mean, just as a younger, a little bit younger, more virile Alfred, uh, you know, somebody that, you know, is much more that, ex-commando that really kind of is a partner to Bruce in his early days. Is uh, is Sean Pertwee not doing it for you in Gotham? Is he? Uh... No, no, I think he's great. I'm just thinking of like a film version, you know, mm. where, you know, I think that Mark Strong, if they had, if, you know, they didn't have Ben Affleck as an older Batman, you know, they were going to have a younger Batman, say like a year zero Batman or something like that. I think Mark Strong would be the perfect Alfred for that because you can make him feel a little bit older but you you know I've always loved the Earth 1 Batman where the Alfred is is an ex-commando he's very hands-on he he can kick some serious butt if he has to you know um so that's just how he struck me with these characters you know he's definitely their cue but at the same time you know he could he could take somebody on if he had to you know there's no doubt about the fact that this guy he had to get deadly you know, with with weapons or anything like that, he can definitely do that too. You know, the cool thing about Mark Strong right now is, and and maybe maybe we're seeing something that everyone else sees is that he's in two spy related movies right now. He's in the Imitation Game, and he's actually the head of MI6. And they said MI6 in the movie, and it's like we don't exist, but he plays the head of that department. Yes, he so, does. Yeah, so there's there's something about him that that kind of screams clandestine organization and maybe we'll see him in future roles maybe somewhere along the line perhaps in a james bond movie perhaps in one of the daniel craigs or or moving forward because it would be neat i don't think that it's out of the realm of possibility for him to to play blofeld even though christoph waltz is the odds-on favorite it could be kind of neat it could be a more serious turn or could you imagine him as dr no Ooh, that would be kind of good. Um, right? I was also thinking uh, he could be a good Scaramanga as well. Oh, for sure. You know, if they decided to do kind of a man with the golden gun type thing as yeah. with him as a villain. So, yeah, I mean, Mark Strong is just a really versatile actor, I think. And, you know, I think he showed it in this movie that, that he's got a lot more range than, than just playing the bad guy. This yep. guy could do a lot of stuff. Um, and I'd love to see him in a more hero type role or where he's getting to support a hero or something like that. I think he's he just does a great job. Michael Caine as, uh, you know, somebody, uh, again, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, Michael Caine ends up being a bad guy. What would you think about that? Because uh, I think a little bit like Matt Damon in... You know, Interstellar, you know, you come in, you see Michael Caine, you're like, oh, this guy's going to be gold. He's going to be awesome. You know, he's going to be the good guy. And then he has the turn and you're like, oh, man, him too. 
I mean, the motivation for Arthur, the head of the Kingsman organization that Michael Caine plays, it was really neat that that the distraction for 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 us believing in this character was that he was completely against change and rallied against all of this modernism. But it's that very same modernism that turns him because he knows it makes complete sense because he wants this, he wants the world to be perfect and bred by perfect people, i.e. the people that Valentine chooses to protect against his, basically his global weapon that would wipe out kind of like the, the dregs of humanity. So again, Michael Caine playing a villain, but not really thinking he's a villain because his megalomania kind of uh, is, is about doing the right thing for humanity. And I think that the Michael Caine character really like kind of walks that line. He's like, I think I'm doing the right thing here. I'm not really a villain, but obviously, you know, he, again, killing innocent people isn't, isn't the, the hero thing. So, Michael Caine can pretty much turn any personality on a dime because he just has that quality of being uh, a legendary actor. And it's funny. I When you said Matt Damon in Interstellar, I actually felt more like he was playing um, more to his character in Interstellar where you don't really see his end game. His, his motives are really dubious. And... Michael Caine is just really good at doing that because you can't read him. He's very Sphinx-like that way. Yeah, I don't completely see that. Um, yeah, in fact, I really feel like he's almost a combination of, you know, that Damon and his own character from Interstellar. I love that, yeah. And I think it's, again, it's a great casting choice because you do expect him just to be the good guy and to be able to trust him the whole time. Because you come in with this preconceived notion about who Michael Caine is in his films uh, on a whole and, and who he's been, especially for the last, you know, so many years and what we've seen him as Alfred and all that. So, yeah, I really, I really like that. Um, Taron Egerton as uh, Eggsy, what did you think about his performance, especially since next to Colin Firth, he, he's really the main star of the film? I want to see more of this young actor because... He sold me in this movie. I've I've never heard of him. I love seeing newcomers in film because we don't get enough of that. We don't get enough of these great first impressions where you you see this character, you see the actor, and it's like, hey, I've never seen this guy before. And it's like, oh my gosh, he did such a great job. I hope we get a chance to see him again. I felt the same way about the um, actor who played Percy Jackson. I know people have their issues with that movie, but I thought that same kind of newness, that 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 rawness of a new actor is really refreshing to see. And it allows you to invest yourself in the character because if they do a good job, you believe that, that this character is genuine and they do, they sell you on that character and you root for that character. You want this character to be able to do and and succeed and win. And he just did a great job with it. He sold you on being this street tough punk uh, who has greater aspirations for his life because he it can't get any worse than where he was. And now he has this, and I'm going to reference an old movie for the listeners, but it's kind of the same vein. It has this last starfighter kind of quality where all of a sudden this opportunity comes out of nowhere and we're going to lift you and elevate you out of your current situation, which is dire and grim. And we're going to teach you and give you everything you need to know to become this other person, the person that you want to be. 
the responsibility is up to you. And he played that really well against Colin Firth because he was making all those excuses. Like, I forget it. You know, this is, this is bigger than me. I don't need this. You know, I don't need you. I don't need your advice. I've been doing this on my own. And obviously he wasn't. So it's nice to see a character being able to flex his quality, but be an unknown so that you actually buy into who this character is. I think it's really refreshing to see somebody like him on screen. Well, and I, I really like the fact that you brought up Logan Lerman because, you know, for me, I, I don't like Percy Jackson at all. It's a terrible film. Uh, I really enjoyed the book series, but, you know, he was in Perks of Being a Wallflower, which is just fantastic, fantastic movie, and he does such a great job in that. I mean, he was in Fury, Fury I mean, up right. next to Brad Pitt, uh, and and it's a great movie if you haven't seen it, and, and he does a really good job in that film as well. So, uh, you know... I think um, that, uh, yeah, I really see the fact that Taron has a, a great future. Um, I, I think as, as long as he keeps taking great roles, uh, ones that kind of stretch him and, and, you know, he doesn't kind of get typecast in any way for himself and doesn't allow that to happen, I, I, this guy's got a great future ahead of him. I really enjoyed watching him, and I thought he pulled off everything beautifully. Um, you know, it's it's a hard thing to do, I would think, to be in a film where you've got, you know, Mark Strong, Michael Caine, Colin Firth, Samuel L. Jackson, all of these guys, you know, really legends. Mm-hmm. And you're really the main vehicle for the whole film. You know, uh, we're, we're going to see, because we, we've seen the previews and it's Colin Firth, but you're the one who the story is really about. And right. um, I think that was really well done. So. Hands hands down to the the casting department for this movie, and and really I think just picking all the right people, all the right places. There isn't a casting choice that I felt like it was off. You know, I just I feel like they did a really fantastic job of of making you not feel like oh I'm watching a Michael Caine movie or anything. It just everybody fit within the roles that they were they needed to. Um, and then when you saw somebody fun, like say a Mark Hamill, it was just like, oh my God, I can't believe that's Mark Hamill. And then you're like, oh my God, that's what Mark Hamill looks like these days. Like, <laughs> like oh, oh goodness, no. it's Luke Skywalker with the yeah. beard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, kudos to um, the actress who played Valentine's henchman, because I haven't seen her before either. And uh, she was gorgeous. She was elegant. She played a great you know, henchwoman. Uh, and really interesting femme fatale especially with her her choice of weaponry leg weaponry i thought that was kind of neat so that's something that i haven't seen before and you know literally um blades for uh prosthesis yeah literally uh sophia botella just really knocks that out of the park and a, a very scary villain because she kind of takes pride in the way that she can kill somebody um, and she has no remorse whatsoever about what she does. Literally no remorse, which I think makes some for, for some of the scariest types of villains, you know. And so, you know, when we're talking about just kind of crazy henchmen and, you know, obviously with Bond, we always think of, you know, Odd Job and, and um, you know, Jaws. Jaws. So this was perfectly fit with that, especially with the Jaws type of villain with the crazy, you know, mouth where he can bite people. And this was just taking that to the whole nother level. Right, right. And someone said, you know, I was talking about it with someone who saw the movie and they're like, well, where did she learn how to use those? I'm like, where did Jaws get his teeth? Doesn't matter. Yeah, that's, yeah, it didn't really matter. You know, it doesn't matter as long as it was neat, it served the purpose of the story. And then the backstory of the henchman is 
somewhere along the line, the, the, the main villain gained their loyalty and their trust and they became, you know, their, their weapon of mass destruction. And this, they do it with style. Ajab did it with a hat. This, this girl did it with, uh, literally again, uh, prosthetic blades. Yeah. So that was kind of a, that was a kind of a neat twist, uh, on the literalness of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a question for you, Norm. Mm. Why so serious? Mm. It's one of the things that this movie really talks about, this idea of the seriousness of films these days, especially the way the Bond films have gone and the Jason Bourne films and all of that, that we've we've taken a much more serious road. And, and in fact, Valentine and, and Colin Firth's Galahad talk about this, what they loved about those old spy movies, those old Bond movies. The megalomaniacs, you know, running around trying to blow up the world and, and James Bond saving them in outlandish ways. And um, what do you kind of think about this whole idea? You know, Bond has gotten much more serious. Superhero movies have done the same thing. And it, oh, does that bother you? Does it does it does it seem like we have gotten too serious or you know, what are your thoughts? It does to a point because movies are supposed to be escapist forms of entertainment and when you go there, when you go to the theater, you want to be able to leave kind of like the outer world behind you. You want to lock yourself away in this two hours worth of fantasy and imagination and and wonder. And I don't know why, especially in kind of like the fantasy genre, the science fiction genre, the action adventure genre, why these became more drama than than before. Because... When I was younger, you know, I went to go see a movie and I'll go see like Lethal Weapon or Commando or pretty much any of the other Schwarzenegger movies or the Stallone movies or the Bruce Willis movies. There, there's a certain sense of ridiculousness and, and, and uh, unbelievability to them because they're so over the top. The, the Hollywood block, blockbuster where, you know, explosions were big, uh, the weapons were big, the muscles were big, but everything was kind of taken a little tongue in cheek and not too seriously. But as the decades have gone by, the 1990s, the 2000s, and now into 2015, there seems to be this grim reality that people want in their films. And I'm not sure why, because it's not escapist anymore. You're really bringing in the, the outside world into your entertainment, and you really need that break from, and from all of this, this heaviness. You need that that the separation between realism and fantasy and let your fantasy be fantasy and make and understand that there's no way that this could possibly happen. You know, that the, the, the ridiculousness in this movie, because it's, it's so far fetched, like in Moonraker, it's so far fetched to have literally, you know, laser beam fights in space between two warring parties. It never, it would never happen. It's cool to see on the screen, but, but you would believe in, some of the things that were going on, say, in Spectre, I mean, the Spectre in Skyfall, where all of these organizations are now literally terrorizing you with information. And that's happening today. You see that a lot. Almost in all these new movies, you see that the way to get to somebody is through the internet and accessing and hacking and compromising their information. Now, I don't know why people actually laugh at that on screen because there's an actual serious truism about that. That's not what I want to see in, in, you know, in, in my two hours of breaking away from, from reality into my fantasy. I want to see these things like volcanoes that have huge aircraft bases in them because I know that by and large that can't be possibly real. I mean, even in Captain America Winter Soldier, when you saw the shield helicarriers inside an underground base, 
That's ridiculous, but it's awesome at the same time because it's so ridiculous. It's neat to see. So I don't like the trend of having reality blur the lines into the fantasy, but it does seem to be more often than not, though, when you go to movies nowadays. I just saw the trailer of the Fantastic Four in front of Kingsman. It was darker than I expected. And there's a part of me that actually really did like it, but it I kind of lost the whole comic book aspect of it. Like, this is no longer feeling like a comic book. This is something that they're trying to brand as uh, something just grittier and real. And I don't know. I don't want my comic books going that way, I don't think. Or at least my comic book movies. I don't know. You know, for me, I think one... I, I see this in when I'm outside of it. It's definitely a reaction to the idea, you know, we've we've done all this stuff and, and I basically put it this way. Bond gets to die another day, which is just stupid and ridiculous. It's not a good movie. It's a terrible movie. And they've taken that kind of over the top trope so far that you've just made a parody of yourself almost and it's not good. And therefore the reaction was, okay, let's let's take this a different direction. You know, we've had really 50 years of, of Bond at this point when they're going to remake uh, into to Casino Royale, almost 50 years. Uh, how do we kind of reinvent this character so he's relevant again, you know, so he doesn't feel like a joke? And uh, so I really see that being the thing, you know, in the same way that the comic book movies kind of uh, had that reaction to, you know, the Batman and Robin-ness of, of what happened. And... What I like, you know, uh, Christopher Nolan, I was listening to him talk about Interstellar today in an interview for about 30 minutes, and it was just fantastic. Uh, it, and I really loved what he was talking about, this idea of, of kind of creating this realism with everything that they did, because it helped pull you into the rest of the unreality of what happened. You know, that the, the realism, if you can get enough of that in there... It helps make all the unreality, the ridiculousness, more palatable, um, and it makes it make more sense. And so I can see how he did that with Batman uh, and you know his his Batman trilogy. I, I can see that playing out. I think it uh, very well in in Man of Steel, where they're not shying away from who Superman is or anything like that, or or the, the powers that he has or any of that. They're, but they're just basing the the questions of the character. Um, and the character as if he existed today in, in, a, in a more realistic sense than maybe has been done before. So those are the things that I really appreciate. You know, I don't think there's not any room for a film like this where it's just not serious in, in the plot line, basically. But I think as we talked about this, this film, even though it doesn't take itself seriously in that way, it did have a lot to say, and it takes itself seriously in some other ways. And so where I get off of, of on, on, I'm very upset with films, is when they're frivolous and they don't have anything to say. You know, they, they're, they're not challenging you in any way, shape, or form. And I don't really, I just, I've got better things to do. I'll go read a book or something, and I'm, I don't feel like watching a movie like that because it's not adding anything to my life. It is just kind of a waste of two hours, and I only have so many hours in my life, so I don't really want to waste them with something that can't give me anything to take away. Um, that's just my personality. So um, I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with the seriousness um, if you do it well. 
The same thing with uh, this type of movie. I don't think there's anything wrong with being a, a bombastic, ridiculous movie if you do it well. And I think for the most part, they really do that well here. And and as we talked about for about 30 minutes in this podcast, they gave us a lot to think about too all at the same time. So I, that's a win-win, you know. Um, you you can't go wrong if, if you can have a movie do that, you know. So I really like the fact that um, there's different strokes uh, in films and so that you know all comic book movies aren't the same these days you know we are seeing some different variations not all of them need to look just like you know the happy-go-lucky marvel film you know we need all different types of comic book films so that it isn't all just kind of a cookie cutter um, thing and that's what i like here with you know this is uh not your daddy spy movie um and that's okay. You know, that's that's really what they're doing. Um, they're taking all the fun from your daddy's spy movie and just putting their own spin on it. And uh, they do a great job of that. So, yeah, I, they kind of do... I guess they... I feel like they degrade a little bit in the film. The idea of the, the Jason Bournes and the, the, the new James Bond films with Craig. But... Um, you know, I don't think that this movie would be half as popular as it is without all of James Bond, even the Craig films. Well, I mean, they were really literally poking fun at the genre itself, but it is the genre that defined and paved the way for a movie like this to be able to exist because at, at, at some given point in time, all franchises become a parody in the eyes of the public. That's just the way that's, that the American public kind of turns um, turns popularity in on itself. I mean, look at Star Wars. And we can take Star Wars to the nth degree in terms of its seriousness as science fiction or science fiction fantasy. But when that eventually turns into, you know, a Hello Kitty Darth Vader, we've, we've taken it as far as it can go in terms of how, how we put the locks on... Uh, the seriousness and 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 the extremism that we put on on our fandom with these movies. So, but James Bond, it, they, I mean, with with Austin Powers and with some other kind of uh, parodies of of James Bond, it's because it's been around for so long. It's really easy to be able to to use them as references for for any kind of parody or humor or just just as a as a scapegoat in some ways of. And then the way they the, the way they use them uh, as an example in this movie. So, but at the same time, they they do a really good job at taking the best parts of of the traditions of James Bond and illuminating them, if you will, because being able to dress in these suits, being able to have the gadgets, being able to drive the fancy car, being able to have all of these tropes from James Bond at your disposal and do it well and reinvent it and make it interesting—that's a hard thing to do. For you, just kind of as we're getting towards the end here, anything for you about the film that just kind of doesn't work or didn't kind of sit right with you or anything like that as we've been talking about? Because we really have. I mean, we've been, I think, really praising the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's always usually something and you walk out of the film like, eh, I just wish they'd done this. Or uh, Was there anything like that for you with Kingsman? You know, it, I know that we had a, an offline conversation about it. And the more I thought about what you're talking about, I'm actually tending to agree a little bit more on the fight scene in Kentucky, which was a pretty long fight scene. And it was 
It was a long, bloody mess. It was, but the funny thing is, is that it's also the scene that got Colin Firth hooked into the film and it cemented his role. So, yeah, I understand that. Um, I understand what they were trying to to do with this scene. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure like how far I want to get into it to be a spoiler, but basically this scene was an illustration of a human weapon of mass destruction that was pretty much for the force of good and then being able to be turned for a force of evil. And it showed how just incredible, like one man's ability to just destroy an entire room of people was, was just, it was unbelievable. And it showed you how powerful these Kingsmen really were. That's what I thought. That's what I, way I took it. Could you imagine if that room was full of the 12 Kingsmen or how many there are? Yeah, it would have been a really, really fast fight. So maybe they should have done that instead. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It wasn't economical storytelling, though. I will agree with that. It wasn't the best way to go about showing how just how deadly this person was in the wrong hands. But I also was reading another thread on Facebook today and... Conversely, it was also about how man is so easily swayed to turn on themselves in terms of his most brutal form of humanity. And I thought that was interesting. Louis C.K. did this bit where he said that if it wasn't for the laws against murder, there would be a lot more murder. I'm not sure if you've seen that, but it's actually pretty hilarious. Because, no. Yeah. You know, it's like if you don't have these these horrific laws, you know, the incarceration or gas, you know, the gas chamber or death penalty and all that kind of stuff. There would be a lot more murder or a lot more thought of it, at least. So look that up, people, because it's actually a really funny bit, and I'm not doing it nearly enough credit. That's Louis C.K. You know, that, that does one thing. You know, I I know why they're doing that scene, the, the fight scene in Kentucky. And I, I just feel like it goes on a little bit too long. And it, and because of that and kind of the, the ultra brutality of it, and, and the really it's pretty disturbing uh, as, a, as a fight scene, um, it yanked me out of the movie, one, because the rest of the movie really hadn't been like that at all. Um, there's only one scene at the very beginning that's a little bit like that where um, the henchman, she cut somebody in half, literally. Mm-hmm. But it's so CGI'd that you don't, I mean, it it doesn't register in the brain. And there's no blood. Whereas this scene is just an utter bloodbath. I mean, it looks like all of a sudden we switch to a Quentin Tarantino scene. So one of the things that really bothered me about it was that the shift in tone didn't fit the film that they had already been doing for the last like almost hour by the time you got to this part. It it just doesn't work because we haven't been doing Quentin Tarantino, but now we are and it doesn't really make sense for the rest of the movie. Um, I can completely get what you're saying and what they're kind of going for and I, I it made sense when I was watching it what they're trying to say i just i i think you can still get that same point and cut the scene i mean the scene's probably a minute and a half two minutes three minutes and it doesn't sound like very long but when you're in a film and you're watching the same scene like this for really you know three minutes it's a lot uh, i think they could have done it more economically just being shorter you would have still gotten the same point i like that point though because what you're talking about because i i agree it uh with it in the sense of the inherent evil of man, not the inherent good. I don't, I don't think we're all good. I don't, that's, that's not how I see the world. Um, I think Louis CK is right. <laughs> We'd yeah, have a lot a funny more bit, murder because a lot to think about there. Yeah. You know? So I, I'm sorry. I was, I was thinking about how that scene could have turned and in Valentine's character, he doesn't like 
seeing the bloodshed. He doesn't mind the aftermath of it, but it would have been really neat if you just saw it from the Mike's point of view or heard it from the Mike's point of view. You just heard what was going on and all of a sudden Colin Firth's character walks out a person that's completely always dapper, even in the worst fight scenes, and he comes out completely disheveled and you'd be like, wow, what went on in there? You know? I think yeah, that would have been pretty neat. Exactly. And that's that's where um sometimes not being shown something is more effective or mm. or kind of um making it explicit to the the audience. That's where that that can kind of really play to your strengths and I think that's for me the other part that kind of tarnishes the film for me is the very end with a joke that I feel like takes it from innuendo to just kind of being crassly blatant and kind of ruins the moment because instead of it being that kind of funny moment that you would expect it to be it's just so crassly blatant it strips all that funniness out i just it's not a funny line because there's no ambiguity to it there's no innuendo to it it's just boom it's like in your face being slapped instead of the classic kind of james bond of uh, he's attempting re-entry, sir. You know, um, it, that's ridiculously funny because it leaves a lot to your imagination and, stuff this, and at the same time, it's extremely dirty. Um, it's a great innuendo and, and that's what that movie, I think, at the very end was lacking was the the innuendo, the insinuation, like you said, with the uh, church scene. If you maybe had insinuated more Instead of just showing, it might have actually helped more so. We're in the same scene with the with the joke for me. It just it pulled me out again and made me be like, Oh guys, come on. You this it, what's funny is this was a rated R movie and there's only really two scenes in the movie that I think truly make it rated R, which are the church scene and there's an end scene where you see a, a female butt that's right. naked. And that the line that they give. And, and other than that, this this movie could have really been PG-13. Um, it didn't have to be rated R because I didn't really see another reason for it other than that. I mean, there's a lot of language, but we're also talking about street kids in England. You know, yeah. uh, the F word is much more acceptable there. So it, it's not quite as big a deal. So those are just a couple of things as we talk about things that didn't work. I can't recommend this movie as highly as I would if those things had been altered because otherwise, I think there's a lot to rave about and really enjoy in Kingsman, as we've talked about. Oh, I agree. And, you know, it's funny. Um, the points that you're making about the innuendo and about the, uh, the way that things were insinuated in James Bond films, they kept making a point in this film to keep saying that this isn't that kind of movie or this isn't that kind of story. And maybe that's the point they were trying to make. I don't know. I mean, there was that scene where, where Sam Jackson... You know, he he takes a dramatic turn against uh, Galahad and he's like, do you expect me to be this villain? I'm going to, you know, do this long exposition on my plan and then I'm going to tell you and then you're going to I'm going to capture you and you're going to do the exact same kind of ridiculousness trying to get out of this plan. And then blah, 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 blah. It's like this isn't that kind of movie. Bang. You know, so I think they and maybe maybe it translates more in the comic book than it does. in Yeah, it might. And I think the other thing was, is that the the main issue with saying that this isn't that kind of movie for 97% of the movie, you have been that kind of movie. You really have been the classic 
goofball James Bond, a Dr. Bashir, you know, adventure uh, from the 60s, just updated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those points where they pull you out, it really is pulling you out of the film. And because you're you're you are kind of slapped over the face. Now, the, the point where he shoots him, I thought was fantastic because, again, that fits with the storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, it's these other moments where it goes so far it, it just kind of overreaches, I think. And I think that's just, for me, the main issue. is just fluidly with the film, I don't think it fits um, with the movie making that they've already done. And, and that's my only real critique. And it, it frustrates me, too, because, I, you know, I would tell anybody just to go watch this movie. But I also, at that point, I there's some things in this movie that I'm like, eh, that's, that's kind of offensive. Um, and it could be really offensive to certain people. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't speak as highly as I would as say, God, have you just done this as a PG-13? You know, basically, if you could get the airplane version of this movie, I think everybody would love it because it's just awesome. You know, um, mm-hmm. the rated R version, it, it's 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 not necessary. Um, and there are some films where I feel like it is, you know, where violence or or, um, you know, even, you know, nudity or anything like that can be necessary for the story because they actually drive home a point here. It it doesn't. And that's disappointing that we're just kind of going over the top for for no good reason. Um, so but that that's just me, you know, um, other people may have completely different view on that. But, um, you know, it's just honestly, I was, I came out of the film and both my wife and I, we both said exactly, she's turned to me as like, it just, I just didn't need that, you know? Mm-hmm. And especially in a movie that's so fun like this, you know, you don't want to come out being like, oh, it just could have been better if that, you know, and, and literally three minutes was changed. That's, that's crazy. You know? So I would say 97% of this movie, huge fan of still good yeah exactly it's still good, yeah you know? so uh just uh for you uh, honest rating you know mm-hmm. you know on a scale of say you know one to five uh one to ten where would you kind of rate this um this movie on, on a whole oh i think i would give it definitely a four and a half out of five for me and and it's just because i do think that that the end 25 minutes it could have probably been a little bit more streamlined. And I think the storytelling could have been a little bit tighter. Um, I'm not really, I don't really um, have an issue with, you know, some of the things that you were talking with, but again, you know, it's, we all see things differently. We all kind of, uh, you know, uh, have that a different experience when we go to the movie, but I really do think that since the end is such a large action sequence, the cadence of the Kentucky sequence does seem out of place. And, it kind of takes a little bit away from how good Eggsy is because you saw how amazing Galahad was. He overshadows the rest. That scene, because it was so long and because it was so technical in terms of its action sequencing, almost overshadows what was being done at the end of the film. And it seems that uh, in, musical ca- in musical cadence, it seems that you were playing your overture far too long than your coda. But that's really my biggest nitpick, and and I I definitely I would recommend this to um you know to to people to go see it, if for anything, just because the casting is so good, and the acting is so good, uh, and seeing Colin Firth, 
in a role that you haven't seen him in and doing it to the letter was just fantastic. So, and if you're a James Bond fan of the old school spy genre, you're going to get a lot out of this film. For me, yeah, I definitely, I put this at about three and a half stars out of five. And, you know, it it could have been probably four, 4.5, especially so far with this this year. And after just having seen the disappointing Jupiter's ending for me, uh, very disappointed in that. Uh, this, though, I, I enjoyed much more than that film throughout the entire thing. So uh, my criticisms aside and my frustrations aside, uh, even though there's a there's there's a couple more issues, but whatever. Um, I think that this is 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 hands down probably the most fun I've had at the movies this year so far. Mm-hmm. So that's high praise, and um, I think it's well worth seeing, especially if you enjoy the spy genre films and and just enjoy um, a, a good time. Um, you know, with what we what talked about, you can obviously, too, make that decision. I'm glad we had a little bit different opinion because it'll, I think, allow anybody who's thinking about going to see the film uh, a good perspective of, of what they might get. So, I think there's one thing that we can agree on. I think both you and I would love the antechamber where the suits and all of the weaponry was on display. Because who doesn't love a room like that, right? That was, yeah, that was awesome. I really enjoyed getting to see that. Um, And that's the great thing about this movie does so much right. And in a lot of ways, it just does so much right. And so Mm -hmm. the things for me that that bothered me were just more frustrations of, oh, man, I could have just loved this movie. And instead, I'm like, I like it. So you wanted a movie that you could get the DVD and just yeah, watch exactly, over and, over and that's and that's what I'm frustrated yeah. by because I'm like I probably won't buy you know the the Blu-ray now just mm-hmm. because th- th- there's there's things that will every time I watch it are going to kind of ding my enjoyment whereas mm-hmm. you know like other movies you know maybe a superhero movie that isn't the best most of the time you can kind of just like plow through it and really enjoy it. like I don't love Guardians of the Galaxy but I can pop it in and have a good time right. you know yeah. so um, you're not going to dread a scene that's coming up exactly that's yeah. ex- I, I don't dread any of the scenes I'm, I'm just right. not um, bowled over by it so yeah it, it's it's definitely definitely worth checking out so yep Norm, it's been so much fun talking about Kingsman, the Secret Service, with you today. And and honestly, it's so funny because I just feel like people are listening in on the conversations that we have on Facebook a lot of times. Uh, <laughs> just when we're talking back and forth, that's literally what we did today. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is that you and I are usually on the same page almost 10 times out of 10 when it comes to uh, movies and things we like. But with all things that are you know that are interpretive especially movies and comic books and and things that are on the printed page um what you see is not necessarily what someone else is going to see and that's why i gave my rating the way i did and that's why matthew gave his rating but the we love having the discussion that's what the 602 is all about it's about the discussion and and if we were in the same room i would be drinking something completely different i probably would be drinking something uh, a little bit more relaxing as opposed to ginger tea because my throat's a little bit raw um, from allergies. But that's what we love about this show is that we want you to feel like you can put on your headset, close your eyes. Matthew's on one side of the table. I'm on the other side of the table and you're part of the conversation and we love doing this for you. So um, there's nothing better than that really, you know, with all the stuff that we love talking about. 
Of course, you guys know that it's not the only thing that we have been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. I really, really, really hope that if they do that, they make Chang the villain because, you know, Captain Chang instead of General Chang or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that just seems like the perfect way to go. Earl Grey. All right, Riker, we're promoting you to captain. I mean, you uh, you killed the last captain. We usually don't reward that. That's usually not a policy. But in this case... Well, well to be fair, he had spent some time on a Klingon ship. The Orb. But the Federation and Bator as a member of the Federation would be helping rebuild Cardassia. And I could see like very much the relationship between the U.S. and Japan today. I could see the Federation and Cardassia having that kind of relationship moving forward. To the journey! Jimmy has a very distinct pain noise. Yeah, she you know kind what I'm of talking does. About? It sounds sort of like she's suffocating. Yeah, it sounds like she's suffocating and sometimes, and I'm going to keep it clean, not always in pain. The ready room. He is the best cosplayer ever because he's so buried himself in his part that we have no idea who this guy is outside of the impersonation of Tuvok. Exactly. He's the Christian Bale of the Delta Quadrant. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. If I'm not mistaken, in any upcoming episode of Next Generation, we don't see full-grown golden retrievers running around the decks of the Enterprise. And I'm also a little worried that Captain Picard has never played with puppies. Commentary, Trek stars. But you'd rather see Red in charge than him. Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) Because you really want porn stash to go down. Yes, yes, you do. And that sentence out of context sounds really strange. Literary Treks. As great as Picard is and his Picard maneuver, uh, I don't think Picard straightening his shirt is going to help him uh, <laughs> when he's going up against the Riker maneuver. Fair enough, yeah. So. Axonar, the official podcast. The changes that we've made, the change to the nacelles and uh, several other aspects of these ships to make them distinct and, and not the same ships as uh, in, in Star Trek 2009. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, you know, just hit that subscribe button. It helps us out a lot. Of course, star ratings and reviews do as well. So we really appreciate all those who go and do that. It just makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search in iTunes. And of course, it also helps us rise up in those mysterious iTunes rankings. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Another way you can help keep all of our shows to you coming each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. Now, this is really important because we are a listener-run network. We, We work off of your donations and... On Patreon, you can find out all the current goals and milestone contribution levels we have for you. They come with great perks. You could get exclusive content. You can get producer credits. You could be on our content development team and more. Guys, we really do appreciate 
all the support that you already give us. And if you haven't and you give, man, we really appreciate that too. We just hope you'll be part of the team, no matter how much you can give. It's it's amazing. We uh, Be amazed where we are now from where we started. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Uh, I'd like to say a special thanks to our associate producer, Norman Lau, who's on the show today, as well as our other associate producer, Kenneth Tripp. We love having him as an associate producer here on the 602 Club. Really appreciate it. Guys, I cannot tell you how much it means for you to be supporting this show. Uh, It really does mean the world to me. If you would like to contact us, do that at trek.fm slash contact. If you'd like to leave a voicemail, in fact, If you'd like to be on the show, basically, leave us a voicemail. We can use that on the show. You can join in the conversation. We could actually have a whole voicemail conversation show if we got voicemails. How do you do that? Look on the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm. You can find us on Twitter at trekfm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And if you really want to join in the discussion, the best way to do that is on the Babel Conference. That's our listeners-only discussion group. And heck, so you want to talk all things geeky, just go to the Babel Conference. Or you can go to our website at Trek FM and click Discussion on the menu bar. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to support our sponsor. And they help us bring 602 Club and all the rest of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for the show, of course, is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all those books you just don't have time for it in your busy schedule. Like it, It's a struggle for me as well. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we thank Audible for supporting the 602 Club and the network. Now, Norm, where can everybody find you online and on the network? Well, you can always find me here on the network as the host for Warp 5, our dedicated enterprise show. When you can find me on the Babel Conference, our Facebook listeners page. You can also find me on Twitter at Norman Lau. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. And I'm also a proud supporter of Alec Peters and the Axonar Project. You can find me on the dedicated Axonar fan group page on Facebook. And I'm also a proud sponsor of Trek FM through Patreon.com. And I'm an associate producer for the network for four shows, Warp 5, The Orb, The 602 Club, this fantastic podcast, and Axanar, the official Axanar podcast. Now, I think I have enough liquid courage built up to go lock those doors and show these gentlemen some manners, because manners maketh man. Right, Ruby? She says, absolutely not, Norm. You just, you just, you're not ready for this. So, thanks, Ruby. Um, your tip's going to be a little light today. Oh, goodness. Well, Nora, I'm glad you are here to join me. Uh, guys, of course, if you would like to find me, you can do that on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me doing Literary Treks with Dan, where we talk about the books and comics of Star Trek. We've got great interviews there from uh, everyone like Una McCormick, uh, Kirsten Beyer. We just had... Um, John Jackson Miller on the show talking about Takedown. We've also got great reviews of ourselves doing things like uh, The City on the Edge of Forever, the Harlan Ellison comics with some of the guys there from Standard Orbit. So that is a great show and a lot of fun to do. And of course, you can find me on The Orb with Christopher Jones where we talk about Deep Space Nine exclusively and my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Y'all come back now, you hear?